Thank you to Jill Taves for just so faithfully serving us on the piano. Um, One of those unthought of blessings that just happens every single week. And uh, we just come and enjoy it and appreciate it. And uh, I'm just so thankful that Jill has given her talents and used them here for our church family. We have been blessed. I, I was... I was actually thinking about Jill and thinking about music, uh, particularly today since I had the opportunity to be involved in it. And uh, I didn't see it here on the service opportunities. But uh, many of you, many of you have asked about um, our music here at Grace Church. And a lot of it is new to you. And of course, our church is still relatively young and new. And so there have been questions about the development of music, the growth of music, um, and uh, our worship through music here at Grace Church. The simplicity of our worship has been a total blessing. But it has been an unexpected blessing. Because we assumed that with this many people in one room, there would be more instruments represented. And uh, more people who were capable of adding to our music team. Um, without a box on your little sheet to mark, let me inform you that we are actively praying for you if you can play an instrument, for you to have the courage to tell us. Uh, We want you to tell us. We'd love to see talents used for the glory of God. We'd love to see instruments added to our praise team, that is uh, Ken and Jill. And they do such a phenomenal job, but we would love to add to that and uh, be a blessing to them. We're already in the process of trying to think through, even this summer, of working through adding some uh, additional singers Uh, who will give sound out of the speakers that will add to our corporate singing. And, of course, our philosophy of music is derived from the scriptures. We believe that our music must, it must be correct. That is theologically correct. We sing intentional music. We do not just flip through some songbook and say, well, we haven't sung these three in a while. We're singing songs that are very intentionally doctrinal. And doxological, we want to give God glory, we want to focus on Him, not on us. They're not all testimony songs. We want to sing correct music, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, a variety of music, but always correct. Secondly, we always want our music to be corporate, because that's the purpose of singing in the church. And so, we don't ever want our church music to be a performance for you to be enjoying the show, for you to feel like afterward you just really want to say thank you to the team that that did the music. Um, The music at Grace Church is sitting right here. This is the music. And so it has to be corporate. We're to sing to one another songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a fruit of our filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of our gatherings together. So it needs to be correct. It needs to be corporate. And then always it needs to be clear. Uh, For it to be corporate, there has to be an ability to understand the words and actually sing them along with Uh, those who accompany and help us in singing. And so those three components are the driving philosophical like bedrock of our music here at Grace. And so if you've wondered and you've asked me, uh, some of you have heard this, this is repeat. Some of you haven't. And if you haven't asked me, let me affirm that those commitments come directly from our scriptures. We have a wide range of freedom with styles that fit within that particular grid. And so there is variety that we desire to see and that we anticipate seeing here. I trust that you know that. That's no secret. Um, We are we're committed to every talent being used for the glory of God, including instruments that are played 
And uh, we want to see correct, corporate, and very clear music be the theme of every time we gather together for a worship service here at Grace Church. So I did not plan on doing that at all. I did not write down my three C's, but that's pretty good, huh? That just came right out. Um, Another fruit of the gifting that the Lord has given me, because I couldn't come up with three C's on the fly. Uh, Three C's for our philosophy of music. It needs to be correct. It needs to be corporate. It needs to be clear. That'll preach. We could just close. I'll come up with a couple illustrations and we'll close. No, I just want you to know that. And I'm so grateful for what the Lord has done here. We are singing music that is brand new. A lot of this music is within 10 years um, of being written. And so you have really shown so much effort in pouring yourself into new music. Some of the hymns that we sing from the 1700s are the theological hymns. And those many times are missing even in traditional services where you may sing old songs. Those old, old songs that focus on God's glory and heavy doctrine are often missing. So some of them have been brand new from 1774 or something. And uh, you've done great. And I just am so thankful as I get to sit near the front and hear the singing coming down. It's just such a blessing to sing good theology to sing it corporately together, and then to be able to follow along with clarity as we uh, focus our hearts in singing in worship. Okay, we are moving forward in worship from singing and giving now to our study of God's word. So take your Bible and let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 has been with us now for months, and I am so thankful for The work that God's spirit has done in my own heart through Matthew chapter 10 and in your lives. Uh, Many of you have testified of his work through this section. Uh, David and I were in the car together this week. He got a craving. uh, If men can have cravings, I guess we can have cravings. Uh, It's always something that the expecting ladies always get to have the cravings. David had a craving for In-N-Out. So he comes to my office and he says, I need fresh cut fries. We've got to go to In-N-Out. So I said, all right, let's go to In-N-Out. So we went to In-N-Out for lunch and uh, all the way down, all the way there during our lunch and all the way home, we were recounting God's work through Matthew chapter 10 in our hearts and in the lives of others that have been talking to us. And I confess to you that I did not have big expectations for Matthew chapter 10. And uh, chalk it up to the foolishness of my youth, I didn't know that Matthew 10 would be such a meaningful portion of Scripture. Um, I didn't know what was here. That's part of the problem. I didn't know what was in Matthew 10 until we got here, not in any kind of depth. And it has been such a profound blessing to work our way through this chapter. A couple of themes, a couple of key principles have come out of this section. And really, they've been with us since the beginning. From the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we have realized that the kingdom... That is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, all referred to within our New Testament Gospels and all speaking of the same reality. The kingdom of Christ is a very actual part of the believer's life. It is not something that is in the future. It is a present reality. It's not something that's passive. I just kind of sit here in the kingdom. It is an active pursuit of my life. I I live under the lordship, the headship of Jesus Christ as the king of this kingdom. And I live differently because I'm in the kingdom. And so we've seen come into focus in Matthew chapter 10 that the kingdom citizens, those, those Christians, are also on a mission. Their life is a mission. 
And we've given our attention to realizing and focusing in and driving out fear in the face of that mission causing persecution to come our way. And it is inherent that persecution comes with the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Because of the king. The king is offensive. The king is foolish. The gospel message about the king is an exclusive message, and we're going to see that in great detail this morning. And so the offensiveness of our king and his person, who he is, and his work, what he accomplished while he was here on earth, and what he continues to accomplish reigning from heaven, and what he will accomplish when he returns and sits upon the throne of David in the millennial kingdom, and throughout all eternity as he is the Son and the light for us in the new heaven and the new earth is offensive. So when we live for him, when we speak for him, when we go forth in the mission mindset, we can anticipate persecution. He was slaughtered. He was murdered. We should anticipate the world's response to be negative. And so in the face of that response and that anticipation, though that will not always be the case, it will be the predominant case. Jesus so carefully informs us, as Matthew recorded under the inspiration of the Spirit, that we should have no fear of these persecutors. We should have no fear. And the obvious implication is that as Jesus prepared those first 12 laborers to go into the harvest field and to share the gospel of the kingdom, as he prepared them and he told them what to anticipate, he saw fear on their face. And as we read those accounts and we read the promises of persecution, we felt fear. And when we went to work and when we got together with friends and family that were unbelieving, we know we're afraid. And Jesus says, no fear, no fear in the kingdom mission, because there are theological truths that gird us up and give us courage. They're steel in our backbone to keep us from folding under the pressure of persecution. And we've been looking at those for the last couple of weeks. In verses 26 down through 33, we saw four truths. The truth will be exposed. So everything that is private will be made known. Have courage and shout from the housetops the gospel of the kingdom. The enemies will be destroyed. Why would we fear those who at worst can send us into an eternity with our Christ? That is their total power. And even that is a borrowed power. Why would we fear them? Why would we be running scared from them when we serve the one who deals with both body and soul? He he deals with both here and eternity. And so that theological truth is to give us courage. The truth is going to be exposed. The enemies are going to be punished. They're going to be taken care of. Be bold. Don't be afraid. Live the kingdom mission. Thirdly, the missionaries will be valued. We saw the sovereignty of God, the intimate, detailed sovereignty of God in the life of his people. There is a unique sense in which God is valuing, watching, ordaining, and caring for his people. What a precious promise and truth that is for us. Be bold. Have no fear. If a sparrow falls, the father knows about that. He was a part of that. How much more for us who have our hairs numbered, who are watched with his careful, loving Abba Father eye to be bold, knowing that he's with us. 
And then fourthly, the faithful will be vindicated. And that final statement by our Lord in verses 38 and 39, or rather in verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge. Everyone who denies me before men, I'll deny. Both of the eyes are Jesus, and he's doing them before his Father. So these are eternal consequences. And the faithful will be vindicated. Those who have acknowledged the Lord, who have lived the kingdom mission, who have been on the mission field from the day they were saved. Or for many of us, those who have engaged in the mission with new vigor when we got to Matthew 10. We can be sure that he will vindicate us as acknowledgers in the day of judgment. He will confess us because we have confessed him. We've given our lives and our speech for his kingdom purposes. These truths leave no doubt. They leave no doubt for us that our mission is clear and it is to be carried out without regard for our own well-being. In other words, we're not to live with ourself in front of us or the result will be fear. If we live with God and eternity and eternal truths and the glory of the kingdom and the majesty of our Christ and the sovereignty of our Father and these eternal, gigantic, heavenly realities, we will be without fear in the face of persecution. Jesus comes back now in verses 34 through 39 for our study today and we'll spend our time in this text. He comes back to the fundamentals of the kingdom. He really comes back to the, the base expectations for the disciples and for you and for me as kingdom citizens. He comes back to this the, the very bottom line of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ or who it is that we're following and what we can anticipate as we go on with this kingdom mission. Like so many in our day, the Jews of Jesus' day, You remember from your Bible reading, the Jews were convinced that the thing that Jesus was going to do, if he was really the Messiah, the result of that would be national peace, which in the Jewish concept is utter destruction of anybody who stands opposed to them, which will take place. But national peace, and then for once in their lives, an easy life. No more Rome. No more Nero. No more Caesar, no more any persecution, no more being told what to do, no more paying taxes, just the Messiah reigning on the throne of David, giving us the easy life. That hasn't changed. This is still the message of many today in our culture, that Jesus's highest desire, his his highest goal is to give you the good life now. Better yet your best life now. That's his desire. His biggest desire is for you to get everything you want and for you to have life as easy street. That flies in the face. It is a direct contradiction to what we're going to find as the fundamental principles of the kingdom revealed in verses 34 through 39. While the consummation of the kingdom, when Jesus returns, which we long for, Well, that will bring peace. I mean, that will bring every kind of peace. All the enemies will be put aside. They will be eternally banished. There will be total surrender to the king. 
There will be freedom from the power and influence of sin. All of those things will come in the consummation. Peace and prosperity are the farthest realities from those who are living in the blessed life of the kingdom today. So it has been inaugurated with Christ. And what he is telling us here is that in this process, in this interlude between the inauguration of the kingdom, which was established in the coming of Christ, his first coming, the first advent, and the second coming of Christ, which is yet to take place, which we eagerly wait for, we cry for, creation moans for it, longing for the day of the return in the middle section, in the interlude, which is now, which is us, which is today, which is tomorrow. We should have a certain set of principles, a certain set of fundamental expectations that help us as we walk through life as God's people and as Christ's followers. So here's the big idea from our text in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Faithful missions for the king must be informed by a faithful understanding of the king. Did you catch that? Faithful service for the king must be informed by faithful thoughts, faithful understanding about the king. There are two questions that I think this text answers for us. And that's how we're going to divide this up today. Question number one, why did Jesus come? Why did he come? What, what was his expectation in his coming? And how does that then guide our expectation as his followers? And secondly, what does it mean to follow him? What does that actually look like for us? What is, what is the meaning of I'm a follower of Christ, which so many people use that terminology. I'm a Christian. I'm a little Christ. I'm a follower. What does that look like? And I trust that this text will open it up for us. Let's read it together and then we'll dive into the details a little bit. Spend the rest of our time mining out what we can find from God here in Matthew chapter 10. This is God's word to us. He has spoken this morning. He is speaking clearly even as we read these words together. I'll read them out loud. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Why did Jesus come? That's a valid question. And it is one that if we had the the venue this morning, I would love to hear the off the cuff answers from you. Pre pre opening introduction stuff. Just why did Jesus come? And the natural response to uh, that kind of question for us is that he came to save sinners. He came to die in the place of people who believe. He came to gather a people together for his own glory. He came to put God on display in human flesh. He came as the example for humanity in suffering and in giving his life as a substitution for sinners. 
He came for a number of reasons, and yet Jesus right here confronts a common myth about why he came. And so he answers for us, why did Jesus come? And he gives us one common understanding. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. If you think that Jesus came to bring peace to the earth in some way, you're wrong. Now that's challenging to us, isn't it? That's a difficult concept for us to grasp. But one thing that is for sure from this text is that if you think he came to bring peace to the earth, somehow that's not right. Like that has to be the case because Jesus said, don't think that that's why I came. So obviously at some level, we're wrong if that's what we think he came to do. He goes on to say, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we're even further into the difficulty of this reminder from our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a number of reasons that this is challenging to us. This morning at Grace Church of the Valley, 2,000 plus years after this was spoken, 1,900 and change years after it was recorded, it is a difficult statement for us, I believe, just as much as it was to the disciples who heard him say it. Why? Because Jesus has not come to put all people on the same page. He's not come to use the disciples and to use us as his followers to make this big world peace movement. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to polarize. It's to divide. It's to separate. It's to mark out two different groups of people. And that is a challenging concept for us. It's not an unfamiliar one, though. Right? We know this because in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, before we found out that we are the salt and the light and that in our culture we are the preservants that keep things from going where they would go and we're also the spokesmen and the bright lights that shine the gospel, before we found that out in 13 to 16, in verses 10 through 12 we found out that we were going to enjoy blessing, we were going to enjoy only kingdom joy as we were persecuted, as we were abused for Christ. So this is not a foreign thought. There are two different groups of people. There are persecutors and there are persecuted. And Jesus says that's a part of his plan. He did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. In chapter 10, we've already dealt with this concept in verse number 21. Brother will deliver over brother to death and father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. He wasn't joking. That's not metaphor. That's real kids that really turn over their parents and have them killed. Right? That's real. That's a real dad. It's a real mom who says, my kid needs to die for this ridiculous gospel that they believe. So this is not foreign, that this is an implication of being a kingdom citizen on a kingdom mission. But it is a little bit difficult for us to consider that this was Jesus' plan. Like, he actually knew this, and this is what he, he came for, and yet that's exactly what he says. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I believe the Bible or not? Because this clearly is the word of the Lord. So... I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Now, why is that such a tough pill for us to swallow? Well, we go on in verse number 35, and he explains that he has come for I, that is Jesus, have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So part of his purpose was a familial division. That's a quote, that section in the middle of verse 35. Man against father, daughter against his mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's a quote from Micah chapter 7. I know you've been hanging out in Micah a lot. That's right after... Jonah and right before Nahum. So I'm not even going to ask you to turn there lest I hear rustling pages for the rest of our time together. Okay, I understand. But Micah's implication was that in the day of Micah, a prophet in the nation of Israel, there was such disturbance and such destructive relationship breakdown in the nation of Israel that there were literally these relationships being played out. And Jesus says, as much as it was in Micah's day, it is a direct It is a direct relation to me. I am all the greater in causing this division. This is my purpose. Now let's ask another question under this. Why did Jesus come? He came to divide. He came to polarize. He came to set aside two different groups. And why is that a tough pill for us to swallow? Well, number one, because we misunderstand peace. This is why careful Bible study is really It's really something that we cannot ever set aside. Because if we take the word peace in verse number 34 and and we just blanket the Bible with the word peace. And so we go back to our concordance in the back of our Bible or we get on our Bible software or whatever it is that we use. And we just type in peace and we find all these things about peace. For instance, in Romans chapter 5, it says for you've been you've been justified. Therefore, you have peace with God. Well, did Did Christ bring that peace or not? Absolutely, he brought the peace. And that's a relational peace between who? Between the Christian and God. And Jesus said, I give you my peace. Well, is this a contradiction? Is our Bible worthless to us? No. We have to understand the peace in context is a peace between the unbelievers and the believers. And if you thought that Jesus was going to come, and if you thought that being a kingdom citizen and being a follower of Christ meant that you and everybody else just get along. And the Christians are these are these people that they don't have relationship issues with those who are non-Christians. You have misunderstood. So we must get the right peace in our context. Number two, we really have a hard time with the concept that he didn't bring to bring, that he didn't come to bring peace because we think he did. I don't often do this, but the King James Version has hurt us in this concept. Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. There's a parcel of shepherds out on a hill, and there's a very important event happening. You remember that event. It's the incarnation. And there, an angel from the Lord comes, and he says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, King James Version, comma, goodwill to men. Well, Jesus came to bring peace and goodwill to everybody. Actually, that's a very tough translation because what your ESV has done, what your New American Standard has done, I believe what the NIV has even done, is said, glory to God in the highest and has appropriately translated peace on earth with men whom God is pleased. 
the goodwill is directly connected from God to a certain set of people. And Jesus is, in fact, our peace. He does give us his peace. He creates peace between us and our Heavenly Father. But he came to divide out humanity. And we should expect that. That is a fundamental expectation of the Christian life. Why is this concept hard? Because we really think that man should enjoy the gospel. Right? I mean, really, have you ever thought to yourself, if they just, if they could just hear it the right way, I mean, they would, they would like it. I mean, come on, who wouldn't like it? If they could just hear it with the right personality. I mean, this, this fuels our, our thinking that, man, if God would just save that person, no doubt a whole bunch of people would believe the gospel, right? So if God would just save Larry King, I mean, think about how many millions of people the guy has watching him. So many people would believe the gospel with his credibility behind it. That's absolutely foreign to what our scriptures tell us. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these texts, but I do want to take you to one. And I'll, I'll tell you these if you're taking notes, and I trust you are. Let me give you these texts. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, speaks directly to the condition of humanity. And the condition of humanity is rejectors of God. That's the condition of every person. So you can't soften it up, sweeten it up. Your personality can't be good enough for you to overcome the very nature and character of all humanity with the gospel. They hate the gospel because they are rejectors of God himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31 Speak of the gospel, the glory of the cross, the message of Jesus who died for sinners as ridiculous to the Gentile people because the idea that somebody died a Roman death, a crucifixion, and was somehow a triumphant king is ridiculous. And it's a total stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews knew that what Jesus said was that he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah. And they cannot have this guy from Nazareth, who's a carpenter's son, be the son of God. And so 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, expose us to what we should expect in response to the gospel unless the spirit of God is drawing an unsaved person to himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, speaks of the deadness of everyone who is not in Christ. The illustration that those who are unsaved are floating about in the sea and we need to throw the life raft to them and they can grab the life raft and will bring them into safety through Christ is a faulty illustration. They're not on the surface of the water. They're not treading water. They're not screaming out for help. They're not looking for a life raft. They're floating face down. They're dead. There's nothing there. That's the picture we find in Ephesians chapter 1. We find that same picture in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, only it's added. Not only are they dead, but they're hostile. They're angry at God. They're enemies of God. And I'll take you to one text that I passed over. Turn to Romans chapter 3 and let's just read this together. Brothers who were in men's Bible study this week, we read this together. It's applicable again. Familiar verses for us. We'll pick up with the quotation in verse number 10 from Psalm 14. Notice the character here of every person that you share the gospel with. None is righteous. 
No, not one. We're okay with that. We're all sinners. There's more. No one understands. There's nobody who gets it. No one seeks for God. There's nobody groping around just saying, I wish I knew how to get to God. That's, that's, that's not what's happening. So this division from Jesus makes sense. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, poisonous snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in, the paths, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, this is the picture that we face as our mission field. And so Jesus is establishing with the disciples all over again that they should anticipate a division, a separation of humanity. And that is the very purpose, one of the purposes for which he came. He is dividing a people out for himself and a people for destruction. So how does that pan out for us? That has a number of implications on our lives. That has a number of very key applications to the way we think and live. We should expect Jesus to cause conflict in our relationships. Uh, let's not miss what happens in our text in Matthew chapter 10. Let's not miss this. It's the family. Why does Jesus go for the family? Because in the Jewish culture, there was nothing, nothing closer than the family. There were no best friends to the exclusion of your family. There was no such thing. And many cultures have preserved this same mentality. That the family is the nucleus of my life. Everything happens with my family. And Jesus says, if you're my follower, expect me to make problems in your family. Of course, Jesus does not give credence here for you to be a problem in your family. There are many who are persecuted, not for his namesake, but for their poor judgment's sake, right? So you are not the problem. You are the spokesman for the problem. The problem is Jesus. He's the exclusive Messiah, the promised one. He's the problem, and you should expect that. That's an application that should flow from this. We should expect Jesus, his character, his gospel, his leadership in our lives, our priorities under him to make problems. That should be anticipated because that's a fundamental part of what it is to be with Christ. Number two, this should cause us to marvel at the grace that has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, you cannot, not with your heart in gear, you cannot read Romans 1, Romans 3, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 2, Colossians 1. You can't read those texts and not say, that's me. I'm one who has no understanding. I don't seek after God. I, I didn't have any eyes to see. I was dead. I mean, th this should overwhelm us. Christ divides, but we are consumed with him. We're willing for the division because we can't get over his grace. What a precious thought. We were without hope. And he rescued us. He did it. 
He reached into the water. He pulled up the dead body and he breathed life into it. That should be a fruit of reading this passage. The disciples are standing there. They're not to be afraid. And they need to have the right expectations that are the foundation of their thinking. And they need to think rightly about why Jesus came. He came to set apart people. And that should be expected. That should not be a shock to us. Now there's a second question. If we're going to be faithful for the king, we need to have a proper understanding about the king and his kingdom. So the second question fuels that discussion. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So why did Jesus come? Well, he came in one sense to polarize people, to set them apart. And that's going to happen in the most intimate of relationships. When there is one family member who loves Christ, who lives for Christ, who's devoted to Christ, who's on a mission for Christ, and the other one is Romans chapter 3, you've got problems. And now we find out what it means to say we follow him. And some of that is implied in the first question. Verse number 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. These are shocking statements. These whoever statements. They imply that this exclusivity of Jesus Christ. This top priority place for Jesus is across the board. This was not a Bible time thought. This wasn't for the 12 and everybody else just kinds of, they get to fit Jesus into their life and make him a part of their portfolio. No, whoever is a part of this kingdom, understand this, the king stays the king. And Jesus paints that in painful pictures for us. It's as if He can almost anticipate the disciples saying, oh, we do that. Oh, we do that. Oh, God is number one in my life. Jesus is number one in my life. He's the Lord of my life. Oh, we're good to go. He says, well, let's consider that. Let's consider what that looks like. And he gives us these illustrations to help us. Do you love your parents? The relationship of a child to parents? More than him because if so if that is the value system under which you operate you are not worthy um, in common vernacular you don't have what it takes to be a follower of christ so let's just let's just pause we only have a few minutes left and let's just put it on the line let's just put our profession that we're followers of christ right on the line let's just let the word of god as the spirit uses it speak directly to us it's alive it's powerful We claim to be followers of Christ. Do we really mean that? Because when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means he's at the top. Folks, this means I would give up my relationship to my parents for Christ. I would trade it in in a heartbeat. That's the depth at which we love Christ. That's the depth at which those who are called out for his namesake love and follow him. They would willingly, without hesitation, trade in their relationship with their parents. So, boy, that is that is heavy stuff. Indeed, it is. He's the king of glory. And he goes further. It's as if we could kind of deal with that. And then he goes one step further 
for us this morning. Jesus says not only must we love him more than our parents, but he turns that relationship and makes it all the harder for us. Notice what we find in verse 37 in the second half. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoa. Whoa. I love my kids. And I love Christ. And if I had to give up my kids for Christ, I wouldn't even hesitate. That is mind-blowing. That is outside of our box. That's outside of normal, rational thinking. This is grace-initiated, supernatural perspective. This is the kind of thing that we can't force. We can't muster up loving Christ more than loving our kids. That's impossible. It is the closest relationship. We have our hearts centered on our kids, and yet Christ is higher. He's more. He gets more of our affection. We're devoted first to Him. And if devotion to Him meant that there would be a neglect of them, we would neglect them for Him. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to say, I'm a Christian? It means there's nothing I love more than Him. And that is a big statement. I was so convicted by a message, interestingly, that the Lord allowed me to hear. I, I shot down to L.A. for graduation for the Master's Seminary. I, I, had, I didn't walk in my graduation, and uh, I was going to go down and see. Nathan Williams actually was walking. A couple other of my buddies from the ministry team down at Grace were walking. So I wanted to go to graduation, so I hop in the car, I go down there. Um, and a big wreck happens on the freeway, and so I get stalled out right in the middle of Bakersfield, right about six miles before Bakersfield. And I'm hung up there for about an hour, just sitting there in the middle of total stoppage in traffic, five-car pile up, the whole bit. And I'm watching the clock, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it. There's no way I'm going to make it, and I'm going to get down there. I'm only going to be there for half the time it took me to get there, and then I'm going to turn around and do it all over again. So I'm reasoning this through. I made way too many 411 calls to try to find other options. Uh, my wife informed me this week as she saw our Verizon bill. I called my wife too many times trying to make a decision. I was struggling, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to find a church, and I'm going to go to a church here in Bakersfield in the evening. And I knew of two churches that I wanted to uh, fellowship with. I went to one of them. In that service, I was confronted with this picture that I want to share with you. Here's the picture I believe that, that really helps put this perspective in our lives. Is the chief end of your life, is the ultimate priority of your life and my life, the glory of God? Is that, is that out here? As, as We're shooting for that. And every component of my life is for that. So my kids are for that. My relation to my parents, for that. My relationship to my work and my job, that. My mission, that. My sports, that. My studies, that. That's, that's it. Like, it's out there. That's it. That's my life. I live for the glory of God. Or, have we put something else out there? And we put our kids out there. And God now is the means to that end. Have we put our family out there? And God is the means to that end. And my life is really all about my family. My life is all about my kids. My life is all about my job. My life is all about my possessions. My life is all about whatever it is. And God is the means to that. I pray to Him so that He will accomplish my will out here. 
I believe that is a clear illustration of what Jesus says is the opposite of true discipleship. It's all or nothing. It's everything for him. We give it all up. He goes on to tell us in this answer to the question, what does it mean to follow Christ in this total sellout? It means Jesus is greater than our relationships. And secondly, Jesus is even greater than ourselves. Now notice we're going from one hard concept to a second one in verse number 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are familiar verses to us, no doubt, and yet I think it's good for us to pause and consider what he's saying. Jesus says that if I am unwilling to die to me, to die to my will, my agenda, if I'm not willing to go pick up a Roman cross, throw it on my back, haul it out to the hill, get nailed to it, and stick me in the ground and die to myself, then there is no place for me in his kingdom. He only has totally sold out disciples. In that illustration, I'm out at the end. And it's all about my glory. Jesus says... If you're not willing to pick up a cross, and at this point, you've got to understand, the disciples, they don't know he's going to die on a cross. They, right? They, they don't know that. So this has all the gore, all of the, all of the fear, and all of the disgusting humiliation without any of the theology. They're not sitting here thinking of the cross as something they're wearing around their neck. This is not a happy thought. This is pick up an execution instrument, and if you do that, and if that's your life, that's what you've done. You've died to yourself, and you continue to die daily to yourself. Then you are worthy. Then, then, then you have what it takes to be called a disciple of Christ. Folks, this is important for us to grasp. He goes on in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What a powerful conclusion. Those who live for themselves will also die for themselves. And it will be a loss. Those who die to themselves and live for Christ will live eternally. That's the picture that Jesus gives us. Whoever finds his life, that is, in the human sense, whoever lives his life for himself, he's going to lose it. The end will be loss. But the one who loses his life gives it up for my sake will find it. You know what Christ followers are? They're nobodies. That's what they are. You know what Christian people are? They're just nobodies. They, they don't really have an identity outside of Christ because they've stopped pursuing an identity for Adam. And they just, it's Christ. For them to live is Christ and to die it's just gain because I get to see the one for whom I live. This is the answer to the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means an absolute, utter surrender of all that I am. Of all that I hold dear 
and a placement of Jesus Christ, his glory and majesty, his leadership and instruction, obedience to his commands at the very top of my life. Now, can we say that? Is that what we are? If that's what we are, it's because he has done something in us because we would never be that apart from him. Now, implications of this. Quickly, turn over to Luke chapter 14. We're just about out of time. But Luke chapter 14 is the parallel to this text. And I want to draw your attention to it just because Jesus gives us an illustration. And another time when he's using this same instruction. Great crowds accompanied him in verse number 25 of Luke 14. And he turns to these people, these large crowds, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Same exact instruction. Now he goes on with this illustration beginning in verse number 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We've done this, right? I mean, we've driven by those houses and just kind of like, what happened? Why did you start that project eight years ago? And it's only framed. What happened? Counting of the cost. He goes on. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that, that's just, it can't happen. Jesus says, this is the standard, count the cost, choose wisely. And if we are unwilling to sell out for Christ, it is impossible for us to be his follower. That's that's the reality. How does this apply to us? Don't allow yourselves to believe a cheap gospel of prosperity or inclusiveness. There are not a bunch of ways to God and every path gets to him eventually. I am the way, the truth and the life. John 14, 6, nobody gets to the Father except by me, Jesus said. That is the offensive message of the gospel. Don't allow yourself to believe a cheap, inclusive message about Christ and what it is to follow him. Number two, count the cost and follow Christ with your cross every day. Preach the gospel every morning to your heart and life. Give yourself away again. Lose it all over again. Remember the greatness of the cross. Remember the greatness of the work of Christ, the salvation you've received, the forgiveness, the justification, the adoption into God's family. All of those components of the gospel ought to be on our hearts and our minds. They ought to be our consuming meditation. We ought to rehearse them. We ought to say them out loud. We ought to tell our kids about them. We ought to sing about them in the car. Whatever it takes. So that I am consumed again, that I am nothing and he is everything. That I've lost it all so that I can gain life with him and for him. This must be an application from these fundamental expectations of the kingdom. Consider your Messiah worthy of all affection and allegiance. He is worthy. 
He is the Lamb who was slain in our stead, in our place. He's worthy of this kind of radical, give away my life following. Unbelievers, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, this is, this is so foreign to you and you're, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, this is extreme. I think these people need to be reported. It is extreme. It is extreme. And it is the joyous, blessed way of salvation to give our lives away, to place our belief in something we can't see, which is Jesus Christ dying for our sin, raising from the dead at the right hand of the... We can't see any of that. And yet we believe that because we've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. If you're here this morning and you have never believed that, give your heart to Christ. Bow your knee, surrender your life, and allow Christ to be the Lord of your existence. Believe that His sacrifice is sufficient. Believe that His resurrection assures your eternal life. Place your faith and confidence in Him. Call out to Him and you will be saved. This is a sweet promise of John fourteen six. All who do come through the way, the truth, and the life do get to the Father. They do have eternal life. Believers, Let's allow the Holy Spirit to remove the idols that are standing in front of Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, there is a very clear illustration of our lives as daily, daily walk with Christ. And that is the, the Israelite people, you remember this, when they, when they went into the promised land, they had all of these uh, Gentile nations, pagan nations around them. And they would conquer the nation, and sometimes they would totally conquer, sometimes they would disobey and kind of almost conquer it. Sometimes they would just flat out disobey, not even partial obedience, flat out disobey and just intermarry with the Gentile people, which was clearly forbidden from their father. The result often was very similar. They allowed, as worshipers of Yahweh, they allowed idols to exist in their land. There were high places set up in their land that had idols, pagan idols on them, and they allowed that to happen. And they even, they even took place or they took part in the worship of those idols. And they were commanded again and again, and the brave men who followed Yahweh God would go and break down the high places. They would go smash those idols. This morning, we may be confronted all over again that though Christ has been at the center, He has been the top, we have allowed our course to be misdirected, and we have allowed high places to exist in our lives. They very well may be our kids. Some of you may really live life for your kids. That's not what parenting was intended to be in your life. It was to live for the glory of God as a parent. It may be your work. It may be your studies. It may be your possessions. The pursuits of your life have become idols of your heart. Understand this. The fundamental expectation the kingdom divides. Christ divides people into two groups. And those who are in the group that follow him are all the way followers. There's nothing they hold back. This is the standard. This is the call. There is no wavering from this. There's no reason to soften it. This is what our Christ has said. Let's obey this word. Let's give ourselves again to obedience to our Christ. The one who holds our affection and our lives in His hands.
Father, thank you for this text. This is profound to us. It is counterintuitive. Our flesh bucks against this. We like to put this in a a nice little box that we don't like to open very often. We want to sweep this under the rug. And yes, it exists, but we don't like to look at it. We don't like to know that it's there. And yet it is the clear word that you've given for us this morning. And your spirit uses it in our lives. He's using it even now to convict us. Where we have misunderstood why our Savior came. Which has led to a misunderstanding of our role now as your missionaries. As your proclaimers. And we have misunderstood or we have forgotten the high place. The exclusive high place of Christ in our lives. May this testimony of discipleship be our testimony. Because your grace has been active in us. We are totally dependent upon your grace for these verses to be lived out in us. We can't do it. We cannot obey this apart from your grace through your son at the cross, providing for us new hearts, providing for us new priorities, new belief that was granted to us. So we ask for these to be our traits, not for our own glory, not for the checking off of our merit box, but for your glory, for the righteousness of Christ to be put on display in our lives. I pray for the lost that are here this morning. There are blind and deaf. There are dead hearts with us, no doubt, this morning. I pray that you would break them, that you would breathe life in them, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, that they would be drawn to belief, that they would give their lives to you, that they would place their faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, apart from their works, apart from their merit, apart from their agenda, that they would give it all away and follow Christ, that they might know eternal life and may be trophies for your grace and your glory, Father, we pray. Use this text as you have planned. May we submit willingly to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.